What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. I am here, as always, with my brother from another, Mr. Gianni Harrell. Gianni, was good, bro? What's up, what's up, bro? Remember last year when we would say what number pod it was for every pod? When you would say whatever number pod it was? Yeah, I remember. I know. You know what it was is that, like, I couldn't remember, and I didn't prep, like, who I was going to say. So halfway through, I would drop the ball and not be able to come up with like who wore number 27. That was the best part of it. Where it's just like, who wore number uh, 29? 29. I can't come up with anyone. See what I'm saying? 29. I actually can, but no one else would know this dude. He played for the Rangers when I was a kid. I wasn't a geek as a kid, but I memorized sports stats. And I feel like no disrespect to anyone's kids who memorize sports stats. But in general, people that memorize sports stats as kids probably are like geeks. Yeah, or just really heavy sports fans. I don't I don't know. Sports stats like but that's what I'm saying. I knew everything. Like so as a kid, if you asked me like, yo, where did so and so go to college? How many did this person hit this? Yeah, season? or like so yeah, where someone right, went to yeah. college. But in general, you would think that was something that someone that like maybe didn't have much else going on was up to. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I loved as a kid, man. So what's good with you though, bro? Bro, chilling, chilling. You watch that Kanye Drink Champs? Of course. I didn't watch. I heard there was a part two. There was part two. I saw part part two had Larry Hoover's son on it. And part one was all yay. Wow. The part one was like three hours, though. What was your favorite part of it? Um, My favorite part of it. I don't know, man. Like listening to Kanye talk is just like a roller coaster ride anyway. It's like, yeah, because it's so accurate because like. He'll be like, I agree with him. I agree with him. I agree with him. Why'd you go so left? Why'd you go so exactly. left? Stay center, stay center. Exactly, exactly. And also, like, I'm such a big fan. And, I mean, I know you are, too. Um, and then sometimes he says things that I'm like, damn, you really didn't like those songs that you made back in the day? Like, you didn't like those albums? I heard him say something the other day, like, I ain't really like um, Touch the Sky or I ain't really like what? Good Life. I'm I didn't like, hear that. Yeah, and I was like, what you mean? Like, now I feel like... I. I feel like I violated or something. Like I've been dancing them joints, wilding out. I thought he loved them, but he's so necessary though. You need people like that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think he's the most important artist of my generation. Could be. You're 26? Yeah. I didn't like how he did Big Sean, but yeah, he could be the most influential artist of your generation. Yeah. And then, I mean, he did Big Sean crazy. And then did you see Big Sean's response? Yeah. I mean, but he was wrong for that. Like, he, if you're mad that Big Sean didn't support your presidency, like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I really do like Kanye, but come on, man. Like, you're not even supposed to be mad if you run for president and someone doesn't support your presidency. But yo, we talking about Kanye West running for presidency and his artists didn't like publicly support him. Like, what? twilight zone is that (laughs) (laughs) and honestly the shameless name drops don't bother me at all because it's just him painting a picture of how fucking fly everything he has i mean a name drop is a name drop but to be honest like in this day and age where everybody has to flex for the gram and that's what business and positioning is about like name dropping for better or worse comes with it and if you're kanye west and you're seeking out these like 
transcendent geniuses who are also seeking you out yeah and you're telling stories like tell the story i don't really care that you was with elon musk or whatever and facts and like you know some of his earlier interviews like the ones he did with sway like he's manifested all of his success yeah well and also i think the craziest thing about kanye or one of and you may not even fully remember this but you're an old soul so you probably were like had kanye CDs at like three playing in this cribbo with your discs that don't even make sense. College dropout dropped like 2004. I think I was like nine, nine, six years off. But what I'm saying yeah. is, is like in the beginning, Kanye really couldn't rap. Like I like when he did through the wire, you know, he it was dope. But like his actual technical flow was I. And then with every album, he just got better and better. And he's just you know, one of the most influential artists of not just your generation, I think mine as well. You want to hear a funny story once? We were at Rihanna's birthday during a Grammy weekend in LA and Rihanna threw this insane birthday party. I think I have the pic. I have the pictures. I'm going to show you this. It's incredible, this picture. So it was like one of those parties, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Everybody was there. It was a movie. And I had heard Ham, the song Ham, off Watch the Throne, but they hadn't finished Watch the Throne yet. And remember, they put Ham out and then I think they did another mix of ham. I could be wrong. And then that came out with the album. But I was drunk as hell. And I went up to Kanye and I was like, yo, I ain't really love ham. But I heard the rest of the joints is wild. He was like, yo, I ain't really ask you what you thought. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and I have a picture I'm going to show you so, yeah. that my boy Jamie Patrickoff took of like me and Ye talking because he probably thought like, yo, look at Rich and Kanye. Yeah. But really, Kanye was in the middle of saying to me like, yo, my man, I ain't really ask you what you thought about all that. What did you say back, bro? I was like, you know, I, come on, man. You know, I love you, bro. I love that record. Oh, Some no, wild shit. Rich. But whatever, bro. Whatever. I didn't really love it. <laughs> yeah. I love the whole album, but I, I mean, I do like him now. Like, it's funny when I listen to the album because my, my kids love Jay-Z and Kanye. It's so cool how, like, the music that, like, I grew up with, my kids actually connect with. Like, I had my godson in the car the other day. He was singing Scenario and, like, Check the Rhyme, like, by Tribe. I was like, this is incredible. Like, that music is not, like, it can be duplicated in terms of there's other songs on the charts and hip-hop is a bigger musical like presence in our entire lives is pop music now meaning that like it's the most famous music in the world but the music from when we were growing up or i was growing up still connecting is so dope biggie smalls two albums last album came out in 96 and you could put that on in any club in any city and it still rocks yeah i mean one that's why some music is a classic and some is not and that's why like the saturation today because of all these like everybody can be an artist now it's so easy the barrier to entry is like so much easier than it was back then so all this talent is becoming saturated yeah it's true and if you have one record that pops off we may never hear from you again but that record is going to be in the clubs for a minute so it's like taking the spot of like a dope ass album cut from like a record where it's like man you could go to a club when i was younger at one oak or something they play like an entire Jay-Z album throughout the night. You didn't even realize it, but they played like 25 songs by right. Jay-Z and like another 15 by Biggie, five by Snoop, five by Dre. Like that was it. Now it's like, you know, but that's a blessing. Hip hop is, is, you know, it's the number one music listened to, I would assume, in the world. Facts. Right? Are we making up that stat? Probably. No. 
No, it's definitely the number one consumed, consumed. global yeah. genre. Maybe EDM? No, maybe country in the United States. In the United States, but there's not much country outside, I don't think. No. Country music's not bad, though. Songwriting's dope. I don't listen to it, but the songwriting's dope. A few joints slap. Yeah. Slap. That's like a... I like slap as a slang word. <laughs> Bro, this next guest is so fire. So fire. I've always liked this next guest, by the way. I met him at the Spotted Pig in like 2004. I was waiting for a shameless name drop. I was waiting for Jay-Z, and he was meeting Jimmy Iovine and Bono. I'll never... I mean, how am I going to forget this, right? I was like... 25 26 and brian grazer came in and i was sitting there and i was the first one there waiting obviously i was the first one there i was like jay-z he's coming it would be late um and i remember what happened was i said to brian brian grazer was like who are you and i was like oh my name's rich climbing i'm producing this movie but jay-z fade to black it's gonna be like the biggest hip-hop movie of all time and he's like, I just did Eight Mile. I was like, oh, <laughs> second biggest. You're like, oh, well, it's going to be bigger. It's, big, it's not bigger than that, though. <laughs> um, but this man's a legend. And, and it's so cool. Like so many of these people that I and still admire and look up to, I've been able to become friends with. And someone like Brian Grazer, man, like just hit after hit after hit. Like Splash. Come on. Splash, bro. Apollo 13. I mean, it's, I'm not even going to name them. Friday, Friday Night, Night Lights. Lights. So dope. Swagger. Boom. Ooh, drop, drop the flex, drop the bomb. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into it, man. Without further ado, Mr. Brian Grazer. Brian, what's up, buddy? All things are good today, Rich. Got up early, ready to go, went on a long <laughs> bike ride, and bam, right here. Bam, and it's only uh, 11 a.m. in L.A., and you've done all that. Oh, e -E. I've done substantially more than that. I had my physical therapy, sports injury. Because um, uh -huh. you cover sports. That's thematic on the show, right? That's thematic. That was a good plug. I like that. Yeah, How is, uh, how's your arm feeling? Because i got to get back on the tennis court with you. Oh yeah, my arm. It's I well, it's gonna it's gonna happen on the tennis court. You're pretty big and kind of badass though, but I I might be tricky. I might be kind of like the guy that throws your game around, you know? Never know. I can't can see know. that. Chip shots, um, slices. My, my shoulder is getting better because why? Because I'm actually doing the physical therapy. Correct. It's so boring, these sort of exercises. It's so boring, as you know, Rich. And KD knows it's just like it, but you have to you have to do it. You have to do what's boring. Get it done. You know when a when a physical trainer works with you, and then they tell you they want you to do like fifty calf raises and fifty arm bends. Yeah. Nobody does it. I noticed during Kevin's rehab, one of the many difference between professional athletes and amateurs like ourselves is they normally legitimately do exactly what the trainer tells them, and that's the difference between the ones that get back playing better than ever. And it's good to hear that you are following doctor's orders so we can get back on the court. Yeah, most importantly, I'm doing it. I'm driven by the excitement of playing you. Oh, I appreciate that. We all need a motivation. Um, so, Brian, I do know you, but what yeah. gets exciting for me when I get to interview somebody that I do know is there's obviously things that 
with all the times we've hung out, I realize I've never really had a chance to ask you. And I'm very curious, and you're like the OG of curiosity. And I figured this was an incredible opportunity for me to learn more about you and your journey, which I'm very impressed by. A lot of times when we interview entrepreneurs um, or business leaders, it's very glamorized when you hear their stories about dropping out of college or you hear about these like tech CEOs that left after a year. I was reading about you and saw that you graduated USC, went to law school, but then in an interesting twist, I saw that you then dropped out of law school. Tell yeah. me a little bit about like going to college at first, what you were looking to do in life at that point, if anything, and then how you went to law school and then stepped out. Okay, so well, uh, first let's start with this correction. I didn't actually go to law school. I got accepted to law school, was on the path because I took a law clerk job at Warner Brothers at the time. So that's where it feels like a lot of people do think they interpret my resume as such the way you did that I went to law school. So basically what I did, I went to USC, got a grant and a scholarship, two separate items to, to get in there. I mean, to get through it financially. And um, I got a nickname early on, first semester. And my nick, in which the nick, nicknames are very important. And so my nickname was 26. And it became like all the athletes, like Anthony Davis and John McKay, JK. And these are early guys that were playing football at USC, winning seasons. And uh, Lynn Swan, who became my best friend and is still someone I stay in touch with all the time, wide receiver, and has won several, several awards, including most valuable player often. And um, basically 26 was, I happened to take 26 units one semester when really, you know, you're, you're sort of supposed to take baseline 12, 12 to 16 max. And I did that because I had to catch up because I had dyslexia or, you know, of course, there was quite acute early in life and I gradually got through it, but I still had a GPA that was needing some help. So in any event, I took 26 units and everyone would go 26. And that was <laughs> my identity. So I had, an identity beyond just like the guy that uh, grew up in the San Fernando Valley in Sherman Oaks and suburbs and went to USC with all the rich kids. And you also, I, I read, and maybe I have to fact check myself again on this, but you played football as a young kid, right? Yeah, I did play football as a young kid, yes. And there was like a, a, a moment you had or something where you felt, Oh yeah. Uh, tell me about that. So it was an interesting thing. So as a young kid, you know, elementary, junior high, I was pretty tough, like, a, you know, uh, just physically tough, like I could fight really well. And uh, but kids started getting much bigger as the transition from junior high to high school. And but I still thought in my own mind that toughness would allow me to play football, which I enjoyed playing and played with all my very tall friends. Um, I can give you all their names, but they were 6'2", 6'3", 6'4". They were all pretty big guys. And um, any event, so I went out for football, got through Hell Week. And then the once you get through Hell Week, you enter a large auditorium where Coach Ogawa and Coach Wiley are going to introduce you. And Coach Ogawa was the one that was really very quite officious and was the man that was 
was re, was introducing everybody and he says name and status of course i didn't know what that meant exactly but i soon learned because i was you know sixth or seventh in, you know in line or sitting sitting down the front row and they'd say perry shelmeyer and perry would say he'd say his name he'd say his name brother perry shelmeyer and they say status wide receiver uh richard cox same quarterback and it would just go on i said brian grazer tailback incorrect i thought what does that mean he said I, I didn't say what does it mean i thought what does it mean but before i could say it he said cut so he just had to publicly cut me and humiliate me in front of about 250 kids which was really uh you know a moment that i a seminal scarring moment for me and because i remember like all these other kids were human beings and it got to me and i was invalidated as a human being basically I, that's how i felt and uh, that of course you know much later in life led me to wanting to make the movie and tv series friday night lights because so so much about the fragile nature of how boys are at 16 17 years old and you know just you know how i felt at that time and what what could be an imperceptible moment could be seismic to someone else so probably the rest of the 250 kids just thought oh that's just another guy getting chopped and to me i felt like i'm really getting canceled basically <laughs> early cancel so then i went out for swimming and and oddly i never really swam and they threw me in lane eight wiley did and I won, I broke the city record at 100 Butterfly, which was really quite remarkable. So it was my, my first sports win in my life. And it's a sport, amazing. one sports win for a kid can really, really make a difference. It, oh. it, it just accelerates the way they feel about themselves, their level of confidence, the sense of identity. They now have a sense of purpose. And uh, just so much, so much good can happen from that one win. I completely agree. And I think those memories, at least I'm starting to realize this now, they, they seem to get actually clearer and clearer as you get older, as opposed to more in the distant memory where you can really like visualize where you were and how you felt. Yeah. And how it you was felt. like yesterday. Yep. No, I'm glad that you had a similar feeling that it just can be that. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think those things like, at least for me as a parent too, like, those memories give me the most incredible reference points when situations that they're running into start to sound like eerily similar. Yeah. So at that point, when you decided to get this clerkship um, at Warner Brothers, obviously there was something about the film business that instead of going to law school that resonated with you. Was there a moment you can remember or did you always love film growing up? What was the genesis to decide yeah. not to go to law school and to start this road? Well, Rich, I ironically, I, I didn't have any background or affinity for film. I didn't have a passion for it. The only films I really saw at the time is I'd ride my bike, my little bike to uh, the theater, you know, the movie theater, and I'd see James Bond movies. But basically, 
this was just like an accidental moment in my life where I overheard some guys outside my apartment and one of them said, I just had the easiest job anyone could have ever, could anyone imagine. It was so cushy. And I thought, well, that's interesting use of the word. And um, so then one of the guys said, where was it? Well, Warner Brothers legal department. So I immediately just dialed 8436000, which was the number to Warner Brothers, asked for the legal department and said, can I speak to Mr. Connect, Peter Connect, who's running <laughs> the legal department? The secretary said, what is it? I said, or the assistant, I said, well, I've overheard that, I overheard that you're looking for a law clerk. And they said, yes, we are, um, because I knew that this kid just quit. <laughs> so I got the job that day. And uh, because I just, you know, in Jewish words, I had some chutzpah for it. I had a little some chutzpah. chutzpah. Some <laughs> hustle, some chutzpah. A little hustle, yeah. So I hustled for it and got this job. And it was such close proximity to everything. I was right on the executive floor of the chairman, vice chairman, and president of the company. And, you know, I'd soon seen them, I'd soon see them walk up the circular drive where they, they were the only privileged people that could park in the circular drive at Warner Brothers. And I'd see them out the window and I just accidentally, oh, Mr. Wells, how are you? And he'd say, okay, you know, why don't you sit on my couch and watch me work or variations of that. And the guys that I would sit on their couch, John Kelly, particularly, he was the chairman of the company. He, he didn't have a desk. He, he just had like a giant living room with pictures of boats and boats, sailboats that he was sailing and Ali McGraw and movie stars and girls that he was dating and, you know, movies that he was picking like The Exorcist. And the point is, is I then became in love with a lifestyle first. I said, this is not what law school is going to produce. And I thought, I'm just going to, since I wasn't passionate about law school at all, it was just kind of a categorical category of option. I thought, why don't I think of this? A new door opened up. And yep. then I turned it into kind of the Brian Grazer Industries at Warner Brothers, where I moved into a larger office. I said to my boss, can I get this vacant office? He said, sure, it was five times, four times as big as his office. But he didn't care because he'd started with Jack Warner. He had no FOMO or any of these yep. things. He just said, go for it. And soon enough, I was getting coverage of every movie, every movie that was to be made. And I started to learn the vocabulary. And I brought the vocabulary forward to understand that's how leverage gets created in the movie industry and in the television industries by, by creative leverage, which I could kind of manufacture because I had a pretty good imagination. And that became the way I did it, just by writing stories every day. That's amazing. It's so, I, you know, I'm not, I, I have such a long way to go in my career to even really try to make a comparison between the two of us. But what I will say is that similarly, you know, I told you how I used to be obsessed with just the energy and culture around, you know, the front row at a basketball game. and by any means I wanted to figure out how to get there and started at radical media, just curious and a bit directionless, but following that kind of energy. And I ended up in the music business and it sounds like, you know, you similarly did that ended up in film, but 
you know, I moved out of music and you have continued into this illustrious film and movie career. When you started getting into the like process of producing hands-on with shows, when you got out of that internship, where was your skill set? Like, what were you cognizant of that you had to do in Hollywood? Obviously, you had, like you said, the hustle, but what was it that you started visualizing for your future and your trajectory? Wow, what a good question. And by the way, just a quick digression. What you just described in yourself is something that I immediately saw in you and so deeply admired. Um, I just love that you can, I think Rich can do anything. And you just, whatever lane you pick, you will figure it out. And you are, yeah, you're, I, I so admire Thank you. so you. much, you're man. Really something, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so what happened for me is I started to see movies and they ignited possibility to me. So the first movie that really, there were two movies that really made a big difference in my life. And I saw them very early, like when I was a law clerk, like right towards the tail end before they booted me out. Um, one was Blazing Saddles. And what I thought about Mel Brooks's, Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles is that not only was it really funny and became a hit in that day, but it was like a shock comedy. It broke every single rule of ethics and morals. It said words and things that I can't say on the show. Um, but I thought, wow, this is a different kind of comedy that I understand. It's not tame. It's not contained. It's shocking. And he, you can break all the rules if you, as long as you, I think, do it with love. Um, and that's kind of what Richard Pryor would do, actually, funny enough. Was, and I got to know him very early as well. And he was very important in my life. And uh, once I got to know him, he came to every one of my premieres, by the way, even when he had to be, you know, rolled in in a wheelchair and stuff. So uh, Richard and um, these movies, the, the Blazing Saddles, the shock comedy. And I went out and met Mel Brooks. So I wrote a comedy myself because I thought I was so taken by the possibilities of what you could do. It's amazing. And then the other movie was a very, very, very different called Battle of Algiers. And Battle of Algiers is kind of a very, is a very successful and effective, basically art film, but it, it, it's a camera that's following people around, following the protagonist or antagonist around. And it's living through this antagonist perspective all the time. And it was the first really effective use of Steadicam. And what that enabled me to imagine was that everything is possible. You can actually inhabit a person's being and certainly their psyche in the way they're perceiving and interacting with the world. And therefore, you as an audience can be them even more. And I thought, wow, that's an amazing capability, the subjective perspective, which I use very effectively, or we use very effectively, and of course, the movie Beautiful Mind. You know, it's just, you think that it's him in the beginning, but it's really an alternate reality. And through subjective perspective, you can do so much. And you would find that many of your favorite movies that live in that, that live in that you know, tone will, will have that very effectively. Chris Nolan kills wow. it at that. Man, Beautiful Mind is like 
one of my favorites um, that you've ever been involved in. Probably one of my favorite films, period. Thank uh, you. I still I get chills every time I see that scene when he realizes the little girl never grew up. That was incredible. I know, isn't that wild? Wild, wild. Johnny, have you seen it? Yep, of course. It's incredible. Okay. Um, so speaking of that, and obviously that brings me to your partnership, and one that I'm very fascinated by because I, you know, I think a great partnership is at the foundation of incredible companies and incredible ideas. And just like any relationship, marriage, it's so easily gone wrong. Um, if you don't communicate and the skill sets don't complement one another. And from the outside looking in, I think I can see the compliment. But what was that first encounter and who was Ron Howard when you first even heard of him and met him? Ron was an actor, a, a, a TV star, Richie Cunningham on Happy Days. So he was on the biggest television show in America I guess the world really at the time. <laughs> I used to love Happy Days. I, I mean, I watched it live, but I used to like just crush it on the reruns after school. Loved it, man. So tell me about the first time you remember meeting him. The first time I met him, well, first I, when I, I had an, I was a young producer at 25. And, uh, and so that transition from law clerk to unemployment to unemployment check became eventually... I was a producer at 25 years old. <laughs> it seemed like a lifetime, but I guess it was like two and a half years. Um, and um, I had an office at Paramount on the third floor on the corner office of the director called the director's building, you know, a very coveted building. And I'd look out the window and just see who I want to meet that day. Um, Cause I was still, I was doing those curiosity conversations one a week. And I didn't have anybody. And I see the start of Happy Days, Ron Howard. So I thought, that's the guy. So I yell out the window, hey, Ron, Ron Howard. And I thought he'd look up, but he didn't even look. He glanced and he ran away. I think I scared him <laughs> because you're right. We, we're, we have a lot of, we have, you know, we have things that we intersect on, value system and et cetera, which we could go to. But, um, you know, I'm an outgoing person. He's an in, he's a, you know, inboard guy. He's a, you know, he's quite shy and he ran from me. And so then I decided I'd call his office and I said, I was the guy that yelled and you, I know you took off and all that. I said that to his assistant, Louisa Valez at the time, remember? And uh, he then said he'd meet me because we were both aspiring to be something we weren't at the time. He was aspiring to be a mainstream movie director and I was aspiring to be a mainstream movie feature director, where I was, because at the time I was very successful, uh, young movie for TV director, producer, movie for television. Yeah. So we met, we talked, but when we met, it was just this point of contact. And I tell this story, he had like an aura around him, you know, it was like this glow. And I thought, this person, I don't know if he can direct, and uh, there's no evidence that he's really, you know, <laughs> validates that he'd be qualified. But I, I just liked him. I liked his soul, his essence. And I thought his soul or that essence would win. And I thought what he can't do or doesn't want to do, I can do. And what, what I don't want to do, he can do. So I can prospect 
stories and find subjects and find perspectives of human beings that are in new worlds. And then he is very good at drilling down into that, you know, that, that, that land that I prospected. I'll say it's, you know, the oil is over there and I put an X on the spot and I'm usually, I was pretty good at being right. Um, also, I'm kind of a title whore. And being a title <laughs> whore, I had to be because, I had to be because you had to market things. And marketing today is, is, as more, is as important or more important than it's ever been. But at that time, marketing was really differentiating. And I, I saw that as a superpower that I could develop. So I'd find the spot, I could market it, and sometimes they would go sort of hand in hand. The marketing would find the spot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he would drill into that hole and go all the way through the center of the earth. And that would be what became Splash and Cocoon and, you know, Night Shift and Parenthood and Ransom and Apollo 13 and those kind of movies. When you guys first started working together, was the vision for a company that encompassed that, a brand that stood behind the two of you, part of it, or were you just producer and director starting to work together? We were just producer and director starting. And then there was this moment after, you know, after four and a half years of making two movies together and really living in the trenches, he brought up, let's be partners. And I was really, really flattered, but I, I, I said, no, I don't think I can do that because you're just so famous that I'll never have a chance because he was an American icon that everybody knew who Ron Howard was. And he was starting to know of his power as a director. And he, he never became, he never misused his power ever. He always maintained and still to this day, this very humble way about him, but he just was that. And so I said, no, he went off and directed a movie and I went off and produced a couple of movies. And then I felt like I had earned my own identity. So I said, let's, let's now be partners. And he said, great. And then he was so honorable and still to this day, you know, anytime he goes on talk shows or does anything, he just says, and my partner, Brian Grazer, and it was quite awkward at the time, but he would do it anyway, just to make sure that it, fortified my identity, which would make me have more confidence, you know, and uh, do better with him. The partnership had been perfect. Yeah. And then back to your, you know, that hand in hand with your title thing and from a marketing standpoint. And I think Kevin Duran and Ron or Howard are very similar in that way because, you know, I think there's, there's a reluctance when you're next to somebody that's sitting with that tangible gift that skill their their trade basketball filmmaking and especially when they become a celebrity where you know uh, uh, historically and more so i'm sure when when you were starting to form this partnership was people looked at the executive as someone that was normally behind the scenes or somebody that wouldn't normally be out there but ron needed you to be out there and you he needed it you crave that energy and similar with kevin and i yeah just like 
dynamic. I didn't really thought it through like that. Yes, exactly. You know, and there was times where Kevin pushed me earlier on because he understood that, you know, for our company to grow and hearing the things that I wanted to do that, okay, well, I'm not doing all these things. So, you know, so Rich, you've got to get comfortable doing those things. And I think that takes an incredible partner and a humble one, especially when, you know, yeah. the person in your case and in my case where the regard and the title is important and being okay to say that because unfortunately it's misused so much that you have to make sure that the facts are straight. And that means making sure that people know and understand. Um, as you started to form this partnership and he came to you though, do, you know, the name Imagine, the branding of it, the sophistication of the brand, and you and I have talked about this, you know, I see Imagine and it's very similar to me in all of those premium luxury brands like in Apple or a Mercedes where the simplicity of it and the one name, it all stands so strong. Talk to me about how you guys put together what that was, how the logo and the name came about and kind of what the mission statement was once you guys came together. Well, you know, Ron and I probably have separate memories on this, but I'm sure he contributed quite a bit to the name Imagine. Um, from my perspective, a lot of my movies, even very early on, the ones Night Shift and Splash and my movies for TV that led to big titles as, and successful films, they started with what if. I like, well, what if I were had to take the worst job? What would that be? And so then I postulate what that worst job is, and that was the job Michael Keaton got in the movie Night Shift, working as a working as a, a morgue assistant, <laughs> the New York City morgue at mid at uh, you know uh, you know a night shift at twelve o'clock to the morning. And the same with Splash. I thought, what if I could meet the most perfect girl in the world? Is that possible? No, I thought certainly not in the city of L.A. And then I thought, which by the way. I eventually met the perfect girl in the world in the city of Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> Monica Smiley Grazer. <laughs> You're Always keep shining, right, Rich? Always, baby. Always. You found uh, your queen. And in then LA I realized I thought all. it should be a mermaid. And then what if became I can't name a company what if, so we named it a match. Imagine Amazing. this. And what what movie do you think put Imagine on the other side of that? Was it Beautiful Mind or was it before Eight Mile? No, it was before Eight Mile. It was basically, um, I think Splash got us to be really thought thought of as really young, successful writer, producer, director people that uh, that you know that you should get into business with because we we uh, you know we were a winning team. I mean, really winning team. And, but I would say Parenthood, but most importantly, probably Apollo 13, yeah. which led yeah. to all the other movies like ones you said, like Friday Night Lights or Eight Mile or American Gangster or, or um, you know, Beautiful Mind and others. Splash for Imagine's like a cut gems for A24. Yeah, I guess it is. You're right. That's right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I like that analogy. Was right. Tom yeah. Hanks, was Tom Hanks somebody that you identified early as like a transcendent star um i identified him early you know because we gave him his first movie job <laughs> in flash which he was exceptional at um 
Yeah, I knew he, well, he had something that other people didn't have. He could be funny and you could live through his heart at the same time. And whereas a lot of actors, actor comedians could be really funny, but they were usually so eccentric that they were the sidekick or the buddy or, you know, you know, John Candy was amazing, but he was best at being that number two guy. So um, Tom occupied a very special space. And there was a paradigm that preceded Tom, uh, Jack Lemmon, and where he had that, and it was early, like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And Tom had this special, and still has this special trait that he can have a personality and be entertaining, but also you feel for him all the time. That who else is like that today, you think? Um, I think Will Smith has that. Yeah. Uh, has that, I mean, I'm just quick to respond on that. Um, but Emma Stone has that, you know? Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence, of course, she does. Or she can be super badass, but you just really, really care for her. Um, you know, Michael B. Jordan has got that. Oh, yeah. He definitely has that. You know, he was, we, we you know, uh, it's a little self-promotion, but he was in our TV series, Friday Night Lights, and he was really good. But these are not flashy roles. You know, you start off doing just being great. And, but they're not the flashy role. And then the audience and people start to feel like, wow, that's the guy that stick. I'm sticking to that guy. That's the person that my heart and my, everything is that matters to me is stuck with that person. So that, that, that person becomes essential. They start off usually as non-essential and then they become singularly only, only essential. Yes. Was there um, a model brand or producer at that point? Apollo 13 is out and your company now is as big as it gets and casual movie fans know who you are. I knew who you were before I was in the same orbit as you. Um, but was there a brand that you were growing imagined to be in Hollywood or outside? No, there was a value system, a value system or alignment that Ron and I had and our movies all had in common. Even the ones that I produced that Ron didn't do because we always had this rule that I could produce kind of whatever I want to do and he'll direct, but I'll always produce for him, but I'll produce for you know, in the case, my case, the Cone brothers and Clint Eastwood and Oliver Stone and and uh, many other really, you know, kind of amazing directors, Spike Lee. Um, uh, so there's a value alignment that Ron and I had that became kind of pervasive in our, not only in our movies, but in the way we were perceived. And that's kind of why you associate us with a brand and a value system that leads to you know quality and usually movies that have an ending that sends you out feeling good speaking of this value system like imagine is so relevant and has been for the past 30 years and i feel like through this value system you've been able to create that relevance and is that through like some of the directors you've worked with the people you keep around you the actors you choose to put in the stories you tell like how how does that play in yeah, How does that factor? 
I think you're right. I mean, I hadn't thought of that question. It's a really good question. Um, I guess we pick directors or I pick directors that where I also have value alignment to, you know, where, where they're, I guess that where we have same as Ron and I were our sense of what's high quality taste is their high quality taste. Um, you know, Ridley Scott or Spike was amazing on Inside Man. And I know it was one of his most successful movies, but he was, you know, a lot of controversial directors I've had great experiences with like Oliver or, well, Clint is not so controversial, but Spike, I can only say the most outstanding things about Spike. He's such an innovator. So, and it was really, I thought we had a good partnership on Inside Man. So I think it's about picking those people. It's, people you know, it's, I honestly, I don't know if I told Rich this, but I try to pick directors that, that have a good, or immediately, you know, I'm gravitating towards those things, moving in. And I feel, and I also feel like, wow, this will end well. There's some people you, you meet and they, you just kind of know it's not going to end well, or you can feel it. So I try to transport myself from the beginning to the actual end and think, well, will this, do I imagine this is going to end well or they rough everybody up at the end or what's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> I love that. I love that playing out the scenario. Cause you know, now you've seen it and you've experienced it that you can yeah. pull from any other. Oh, this reminds me of the time I did this with this person and that never ends. Well, I'm not doing it. Yeah. I want to be friendly with, and I want the person with, uh, with everyone I work with. I want good. them to feel good vibes and I want to feel good vibes back and you know, that kind of thing. Did you, you always had that perspective? Always. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really amazing. But to that point, you know, Hollywood is notorious for having some divas within the industry, but some oh, divas sure. are extraordinarily talented. So yeah. what is it, how do you leverage working with like a diva versus what that diva could produce for your film? Well, movies, you just have to tough it out because it's a finite period of time. And so sometimes I would just tough it out to the end, but I didn't have any diva directors really I produced like 90 movies. And I mean, you know, I, I one, one of them director is very, very, very difficult. Um, and I just, how I, the way you do it is I know how I did it. Because this one director wants to test you every day, like just punches you basically metaphorically every day. And so, and I knew that about him, but he's hugely talented. So I just thought I made a pact with myself in the very beginning. I am not going to be friends with this person ever. <laughs> I'm never going to create, allow any kind of codependency where I'm, like reliant upon his validation to make me feel good. So that worked. So basically I was just, you know, very um, controlled all the time. And they would try to seduce you in. And uh, I said, I would just be business, just straight, let's work. I, I did have one director. I mean, just to give you the op flip side of that, 
I had one director that was really highly, highly talented and the star was a diva. And the star liked me because I knew him prior to the director. So I warned the director, the director said, you know, I'm really, he really wants the star to like him. Is he want the star to like you? But then the star invited him to a Chicago Bulls game. We were shooting in Chicago. I said, do not go with the star. Don't go. He goes, got it. I said, because this, if you go with the star, you are going to, is this an R-rated show, basically? If you go with the star, you are going to be his bitch, like, <laughs> at the end of the game. And he goes, right. Guess what? He went to the game with him. He didn't even get to sit next to him. He sat four, three away because the entourage sat between the two of them. And from that point on, the power dynamic shifted day one and not in favor of the director. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never is. A few more questions before we let you go. And I, I want to just like take another second to really give you your flowers on the brand building thing because we've talked oh. about it. And for me, like building a brand is way more beautiful than making money. Building a brand and something that you can stand behind, that you imagine, yes. no pun intended, that you envision, that you have sleepless nights over. When you see it come to fruition and you know the impact it has on people and you can maintain it for 30 years, it's an incredible achievement. And I think about how you meet with people from all walks of life, how you carry yourself, how you dress, how you behave. All of it, like you said, plays a part in why this brand still today to people Gianni's age, to athletes across all sports, you see it with all the work you do where the brand still has such a connection with people and strikes this chord of value and premium and quality. And that's tough in film, especially with the amount of content that's out. And people are less and less worried about who is the company behind a film. But when Imagine's behind something, it means something special. And that's like cross business sector. So that's a real testament to, to you. And I watch how you and Ron have done it because I think it's in the subtleties. I think it's in the patience. It's probably in the ability to say no a lot, to walk away from people with bad energy and to focus on consistency and to do it for a long time. And, you know, I think it's incredible. And I see now in today's landscape, and we've talked about this, you know, sports now being a big part of what you offer, swagger, your work with Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, and obviously, like we said, Friday Night Lights. But in this streaming climate now where you see the Reese Witherspoon deals of the world and you see these companies, um, they're built a little bit on the creator economy thesis, which is like the individual at the center of this can create a ton of revenue and opportunity and content. Yeah. You guys have done this for so long. I would imagine that there's got to be this like slippery slope of, okay, there's this incredible like exit at some point in my life if I wanted, or this incredible like finale or, or, or maybe not, maybe this is a legacy you want forever, but your baby 
now is in a position where it could be so valuable to one of these like behemoth streaming giants. Is that something that like attracts you? Is it something you're skeptical of? What do you see the like next chapter of Imagine now kind of turning into and the future of it and yourself? Um, I mean, look, I'm intrigued with, you know, diff these different options that you alluded to. Um, I, again, you just want to find the right partner in whatever you, whatever you do in, in advancing any brand, I guess, and our brand in particular. So you want someone to appreciate it. I don't mean like appreciate it, like, like praise you for it, but see the value in it and how the value will benefit them. I mean, only through mutuality do should things really happen, right? Like, so if I am dying to do something with a particular company, but they're not dying to do it with me, or, or conversely, it that that doesn't really work. You have to feel like, wow, I'm going to do better, make better quality stuff. I'm gonna, you know, just better things will occur from a partnership. In the same way it happened with Ron and I. And you and KD. Yeah. Any streaming service, if they don't see the value in what a company like Imagine could represent, would be crazy. But at the same time, you've operated independently for so long and can stay independent. That's the beauty of, I think, what you've built. And mm -hmm. you continue to do it your way. And then like Gianni said, I get to meet all these incredible young people working for Imagine and younger projects you're working on and you know, the sports projects continue to keep you insanely culturally relevant and to think that mm -hmm. like people in their 20s know who Brian Grazer is, whether it's from right. 8 Mile and your affiliation there or the work you do now or Friday Night Lights. And then to think about the shows like Splash and Apollo 13 and these things that were before so many of this generation's time and to think you're still doing it is really incredible. Um, thank you so much for joining the show. I know Gianni has some interesting questions lined up for you before we let you go. But okay. uh, one other thing, how exciting is Swagger, man? Oh, man, I know. It's, it's Swagger, of course, is a TV show that you and I did together along with KB and Reggie Blythewood. Um, um, well, really exciting. The reviews are spectacular. People Amazing. really like it because it's authentic. I mean, people love, they, mag they gravitate towards new worlds new perspectives and authenticity. So we're kind of purists in that sense, right, Rich? A hundred percent. I feel so good about the product. And we talked about this in the very beginning. I remember Kevin talking to you about how important the quality of the basketball needed to be. And that's been really praised, which is cool to see too. Yeah, it's youth basketball, right? Like, I guess, whatever, what do you, I don't know what you call it, youth basketball, club basketball. Yeah. AAU yeah. basketball. AAU, Youth of Basketball, Grassroots, yeah. But, I mean, people are loving it, and the cast is incredible, and Reggie did an incredible job, and it's really been, obviously, an honor to work on a project with you officially, which is awesome. Let's do another one, Rich. We're definitely doing another one. All right, I got a, um Gianni, what do we got for Mr. Grazer before we let him go? Let's do it. I've got some rapid fires for you. You ready? Ooh, rapid fire. Let's do it. Someone you want to work with you've yet to work with. Will Smith. Uh, favorite actor, actress right now? Um, actor or actress. Apologies. Actor or actress. Uh, I would like to work with Jennifer Lawrence, and I haven't yet worked with 
Emma Stone and would love to work with her. She's so gifted. Um, I like Zendaya a lot, really like Zendaya. I want to work with Sam Levinson, who does Euphoria, and I knew him as a young kid, like five, six years old. <laughs> He'd come to our house with his dad, mom. Uh, he's really gifted. He's super inspired. Um, that, uh, that's okay. That's good. Favorite director of all time? Favorite director of all time? Yep. That I've worked with or just in the world that I've worked with? No, it, and it has to be somebody other than Ron. Oh, uh, God. Well, okay, here's a random one. Okay, I have a lot. Milos Forman, who directed Coop, One Flew, one flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, uh, my favorite tour. Wait, okay. Stanley Kubrick. Sorry. Stanley Fire. Kubrick. Boom. There it is. Those movies all hold up. I love Stanley Kubrick. And yeah, then Clockwork Orange was I got crazy. Marty Scorsese something. And, I, and look, Spielberg's amazing. <laughs> he is the greatest action director in the world of all time ever <laughs> favorite yeah. movie you didn't produce um well favorite movie i didn't produce um back to the future <laughs> <laughs> only I because though i bring that up because i was making comedies at the time and i just never thought a comedy could have all that dimensionality and pace that just kind of blew my mind. I thought, why couldn't have I done that? What happened? I didn't have the vision or capability, quite frankly. You know, it was just out of my reach. It was so awesome. Incredible. Yeah. All right. Well, Brian, thank you yeah. so much. I know you thank probably you have a uh, fun packed day in front of you. You maximize all your time, and I really appreciate that. Thanks. And Johnny, thanks so much for spicing it up. 